Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Wanted to uh, start the talk tonight sharing a postcard that a friend sent me a while ago. It's for a product that uh, you might be curious about. Meditate like a Zen monk at the push of a button. (laughs) Remarkable technology transports you effortlessly and safely into brainwave states of deep meditation, relaxing stress relief, profound emotional healing, high-performance mental abilities, increased self-awareness, guaranteed. (laughs) Experience deep Zen-like meditation, makes meditation easy, accelerates results, permanently heals dysfunctional feelings and behaviors, even those which have stubbornly resisted other approaches. Why are we bothering? I'm not a distributor. uh, (laughs) However, I did call up and and just out of curiosity see uh, it's it's a cassette that I think was pulled a couple of years ago. I think it was $150 to get this special cassette that will change your brainwaves and (laughs) heal all emotional dysfunctions. Um, So... If you're interested, I'll give you the phone number, but uh, I don't think it usually works that way. <clears throat> if only. If only. Wouldn't that be great? You just, at a push of a button, heal all dysfunctions, accelerate your meditation. <clears throat> it's usually a little bit longer road than that. And I wanted to talk tonight about how actually it is possible to change. Because it is possible to change from confusion and suffering and fear and self-judgment to a place, uh, to a home where you naturally more and more live in that um, is at ease and comfortable in your own skin and being who you are. It's possible. Like I said, I think the other day, the Buddhist statement, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. It is possible. But because we've practiced certain habits of mind for so long, it takes some real commitment and understanding of how that change works over time. There's a a line that I love in uh, the Buddha's teachings in one discourse. He said, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. It's pretty straightforward. 
Doesn't that make sense? You practice fear, and that becomes the way that your mind naturally gravitates. If, you, if you've perfected it over years, or you practice anger, or you practice wanting, or a sense of uh, incompleteness. And so to change that habit of mind takes tremendous patience and understanding of how that change happens. As a, a, a teaching, the thought becomes the word, word becomes the deed, deed develops into habit, habit hardens into character. So watch the ways of the thought with care. And, and let them come from a place of loving-kindness and wisdom. How do we change? How is this possible? In the Eightfold Path, the first step is called wise understanding, or right view, or wise view. And it gives you a, a sense of how it's all put together, what the really what a free mind is like, understanding the Four Noble Truths and some basic understanding of love, cause and effect. And when you first see that, that wise understanding, it's an inspiring picture, but that's not enough. It's not enough to just read about it and say, oh yeah, well that's good to know that that's possible. The second step in the Eightfold Path, which is the one that I want to talk about tonight, the key step in this process, once you see the possibility, is called wise intention or right intention. It's also sometimes called right thought or wise thought or uh, wise aspiration. That having seen that map and that possibility, one gets clear on the intention to walk that path for oneself and to actualize your full potential. And it all starts, once you see the picture, with intention. The power of intention is enormous. This is how change happens. I want to talk about two different levels of intention tonight. The first having to do on a moment-to-moment -moment level where in every moment we are cultivating an intention that will either lead to suffering or happiness. This is also sometimes called volition, the volition behind each action. So that's one piece. And then the second piece that I want to explore is this whole idea of aspiration, having a vision, an inspiring vision that we can align ourselves with. First, it's important to see how on the moment-to-moment -moment level we are creating our, our life, leading towards more suffering or happiness. In every single moment, there is this volition 
we can be acting from greed, hatred, delusion, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. In every single moment, volition is there, and whether we are acting from an unskillful place or a skillful place is really up to us. Volition is neither good nor bad. It's just there in each moment. When things, when the moment is a pleasant one, if we're not aware, our usual attitude, reaction is grasping, wanting, attachment, or what's called greed. If it's an unpleasant moment, our typical reaction when we're not clear is aversion, or ill will, or hatred, just recoiling against. And if it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, usually we space out, we don't notice, and this is a moment of delusion, not seeing clearly what's here. It's one aspect of delusion that I'll I'll just mention right now. If we are clear, then there's a whole other possibility. When there's a pleasant moment, instead of grasping it, instead of holding on and wanting more, there is a complete connection and enjoyment of it, appreciating the moment without clouding it or coloring it by that movement of contraction that holds on to changing experience. And so it's a moment of non-greed or an openness, a connection with things, but not in that clutching way. If the moment is unpleasant, if we are mindful, instead of recoiling against it with aversion or hatred, we are learning to open up to it with a friendliness, with a welcoming, not that we like it, but that we can be with this too and not contract. That friendliness is really the heart of loving-kindness. We're not adversarial with our experience. And when things are neutral, if we're very present, like with the breath, it's not you know, the most exhilarating, exciting, groovy entertainment. <laughs> but when you're quite present with it, it can be a very... Um, stabilizing, centering, and at times quite um, sacred experience, depending upon how much attention we have. And we're clear around it, and we're not confused. So just to explain on a deeper level how this karma works, in every single moment, we are in four ways cultivating our karmic Fruit. We are planting seeds that have karmic fruit in four ways. As an example, think of something unskillful that you've done. Don't have to go for the worst thing in the world, right? <laughs> you know, maybe in the last couple of days or sometime in your life, if you can think of an unskillful act. Right? <laughs> and just uh, remember while you were in the middle of that act how it felt. Maybe the moment while you're in the middle it felt fleetingly good, a quick discharge, but maybe just the moment as it completed. You know, you just really tore into somebody or something like that. How did it feel? Probably not so good. 
the likelihood of that being a similar response in a similar situation is greater because you've just practiced a little bit that response. So we're practicing that habit. That's a second way that we're sowing the seeds of unpleasantness. The energy that comes back to you from whoever was the fortunate recipient is probably in kind. Usually people don't say, oh, thank you for that feedback, and oh, lay it on a little bit more. It's like, hey, man, or you can feel the vibes. It comes back to you. You know, what goes around comes around, as they say. So that's a third way that that energy comes back. And the fourth way is when you just thought of that act, how did it feel? Not so good, right? Every time you do something that's unskillful, the recollection of it is itself suffering and unpleasant karma. Okay. So that's the not-so-good news. The good news is this. Think of a very wholesome, skillful act that you've done. Maybe a random act of kindness, some thoughtful deed spontaneous, not for any result other than it just came out of you. Can you think of something somewhere in your distant past? Or maybe just today, even holding a door open for somebody. Okay, everybody got something? Okay. While you're in the middle of that act, how did it feel? Good, didn't it? Ah. The likelihood of that act being repeated is greater because you've just practiced that. Oh, that feels good. And you're practicing that habit. The energy that comes back to you is usually in kind. When somebody's very kind and thoughtful for you, how do you feel like being around them? You want to be that way back. Isn't that so? And it's the same way when you put out that good energy. Generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, people really appreciate and respond in like, uh, in like way back. And when you just thought of that, when you just recalled that skillful, thoughtful act, how did it feel? Did it feel good? So every single moment you're planting the seeds towards either more suffering or more happiness. You have a choice. Each moment doesn't seem like very much, but drop by drop, as it says in the teachings, drop by drop, you are cultivating deeply habits that harden into character. There's an image of a bucket under a dripping faucet. One drop at a time doesn't look like much is happening, but after a while, that bucket gets filled. So... This is how intention works on a very minute moment-to-moment level. And it is the basis of all karma. The Buddha says, intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending, one creates karma by way of body, speech, and mind. So, 
if you have a, a sense of that possibility that drop by drop you are creating habits that harden into character, once you see that possibility, especially if you've understood the, the wise understanding of the possibility of freedom, then you can have a very strong aspiration, intention, to let that be what your life is about. And this is the aspect of intention I want to focus mainly on tonight. That aspiration or motivation. In the Tibetan teachings, there's a saying, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. This is just what we're talking about. Everything rests on where you want to place your attention and where you're coming from as, the, as you perform the action. It's not the act in and of itself, but the spirit that you bring to that act. So how does this intention work? First, intention is different than just having a good idea. Yeah, it would be nice if I could learn to bring more loving kindness to my life, to myself. Gee, wouldn't it be great if, if I really could act skillfully? Oh, yeah, it would be so wonderful if... Yeah. I wish... You ever have that thought? I wish I could... I'd like to... That's not intention. Intention is a heartfelt connection, a, co- a decision to turn towards, incline the mind towards your vision. It's not necessarily even a rational idea for it to really be rich and, um, and powerful there needs to be some kind of emotional connection more than I'd like or I wish. It's I want. I will make it happen. Intention is different than expectation or goal. Sometimes we get confused in thinking, okay, if I really go for this, if I really do it with full-heartedness, I'll get what I want just when I want it. And if it's not there, we get disappointed. This is a very um, a great disservice for the power of your intention. If you have some kind of expectation of what it's going to look like or what kind of timetable it's going to be, you are setting yourself up for a disappointment. Intention is a wholeheartedness, but that lets go of the timetable, lets go of the results, and simply keeps on facing in that direction. And it means you have to be willing to make mistakes, willing to learn in the process, willing to let go of knowing how it's going to be and have some kind of trust that if you do your part as best you can, then life will start revealing itself to you. 
I had a, an experience a number of years ago. I was at a crossroads in my life. This is many years ago. I had, was a school teacher in, in New York City, and I had been teaching for a number of years. And I was, I thought I was kind of finished with that kind of teaching and living in New York. I loved it for many years, but when you don't have the energy for it, if there's any school teachers in here, and I, I deeply value and, and honor teachers, if you don't have the energy for it, then it's, it stops, it starts getting old fast. And it's not a reflection of the kids, it's where you're coming from. And I had been teaching for about 10 years and I thought there was something else that, that was happening. I actually continued teaching a couple of more years uh, after I left New York. But at this point it was, okay, should I keep on teaching? It was very secure. I had a real security because I was getting an income. $17,000 a year, <laughs> which I, you know, I didn't dare give up because it was, that was hot in those days, right? I was living by myself. Or should I go up to the meditation center, IMS, which had just opened? I had sat my uh, first three-month course and thought, well, maybe I'll be on staff there and just completely be held in the Dharma. Or Perhaps I should go take my Asian experience and, and travel, uh, travel to Asia. And the fourth option was moving out to California, where a friend had said, hey, we've got an opening on our house, and why don't you come live here? They all seemed perfectly good options. And I couldn't figure out what to do, and I was concerned about making the right decision. So um, after kind of trying to figure out a lot, I decided to go to somebody who, was, who had been very helpful for me in the past, a very wise man. This is out in Colorado, uh, who's, who lived in Denver. His name was Reverend Miller. He was a psychic. Five dollars a reading. <laughs> Not in it for the money. This guy just is really wise. And I had seen him a, few, a little bit, a few times before. And I went to him and I shared with him my dilemma. And I said, please, help me. I, I really I want to do the right thing. And he listened and I was waiting. He said, well, I won't tell you what to do. And I just... Uh, <laughs> he said, but I will tell you one thing. I said, yeah. <coughs> he said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. And he believed in spirit guides and devas and guardian angels and things like that. And that was how he related to, to, to things. And he said, if you're frozen in indecision because you're afraid of making the wrong move your spirit guides can't help you you're just stuck in fear but if you need to make a decision you take the first step whichever one seems best in this moment and then you see as soon as you put yourself in motion one thing leads to another leads to another and you can see well no this isn't the right one okay let's try this or, oh, this opened up to a whole thing that you hadn't, hadn't at all expected. That's how life works. And he says, if you put yourself in motion, your guides can help you. And you can maneuver and adjust and be in the rhythm of life. Not 
being afraid of making a mistake, but just putting yourself in the flow. It was the best $5 I ever spent <laughs> because it has kept me in good stead 30, 28 years later. So it means being willing to not know and being willing to make mistakes, just moving in the right direction. Sometimes we get discouraged by how long it seems the road will be, how much more I have to learn before I can, can get where I want to go. And th- again, this is not such a helpful attitude. On one retreat, I, I remember um, going into an interview with Joseph, I mentioned before, and I had been practicing, oh, for about five years or so, and uh, very diligently, and had done uh, a few longer courses. And, but I was, it was like I opened up to a whole other realm of practice that was new to me, and I went into an interview, and I said, I don't know what I've been doing the last five years, but this is a whole different ball game. You know, it's like, whoa, what's going on? And he said with this kind of glee, he said, oh, yeah, I know that feeling. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit, every every time I do a retreat, you know. And then he leaned forward with this twinkle, this sparkle in his eye, and he said, and it's like we're at the tip of the iceberg. I still get shivers when I hear him saying, with such excitement and wonder, and it's like we're at the tip of the iceberg. He wasn't saying, yeah, and we've got such a long way to go. What a drag. It's like, (laughs) this is so exciting. Look at how much more we can learn. Look at how much more there is to wake up to. What an adventure we're on. If you're willing to be on an adventure and let go of your timetable, then it becomes really a joyous journey. But it means being very patient and being willing to make mistakes. Thomas Edison was, um, he was interviewed after, uh, later on in his life, and uh, it turns out that inventing the light bulb um, took 2,000 attempts before he figured it out. And this guy was interviewing him, and he said, Mr. Edison, how did it feel to fail 2,000 times? And Edison looked up at him and he said, My dear man, I did not fail. I invented the light bulb. (laughs) And it was a 2,000-step process. (laughs) (coughs) We have to be willing and flexible to keep knowing that if we're facing in the right direction and take the next step, that is enough. In fact, that's all we can do, isn't it? Sometimes with intentions, we might have lofty intentions, you know, being some kind of you know, spiritual being that's always coming from purity of heart. You know, and we do a compassionate act And it feels good until we sense in the back of our minds this voice that says, gee, I hope they appreciate it. I hope they recognize what a really good person I am. And then if you see that thought in all its glory, it's like, 
Ooh, God. <laughs> I thought I was being so holy and pure, and here's all of this ego involved. That can be very discouraging, particularly if you're focusing on those less than noble intentions. You can have 98% purity of heart <laughs> and a 2% hmm, I hope they get it, who I am. If you focus on the 2%, you will negate all the, the beauty and, uh, and power of that 98% purity. Even if it's 51% purity, that's okay. There's going to be mixed intentions. Until you're a fully enlightened being, probably there's some sense of self that creeps in sooner or later. Rather than focusing on the unskillful intentions, knowing that it's part of the package, that there's mixed intentions, and keeping on focusing, aligning yourself with that purity of heart, then you can feel the joy, then you can feel the recollection as you did a moment ago, and let it really nourish you so that you're more likely to repeat that. But if you just dwell on your impure heart, that's what you are inclining your mind to. Whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will be the inclination of their mind. If you see yourself doing something from an unskillful intention, that's okay as well if you're learning from it. The, the Buddha has this wonderful discourse to his son, Rahula, and he says, you might realize or have an impulse to do an action that's, uh, that you aren't clear yet where it's leading to. He says, if you can, reflect. Is this leading to suffering or is this leading to happiness? And act accordingly. If you want to be happy, then continue that action. You might not realize, he says further on, in the middle of the act or in the middle of the words. And he says, if you can, stop and reflect. Is this leading towards suffering or towards happiness? And act accordingly. And then he says in the discourse, after you've done the act or spoken the words, done the deed, and then reflect did this lead to suffering or did this lead to happiness? He says, if it led to suffering, he does not say, go ahead and beat yourself up. This is not, <laughs> not in the Pali Canon at all. Right? He says, just reflect and see, how did this feel? What can I learn from it? What's called wise reflection, wise remorse, and having a commitment to see, okay, when I did that, it doesn't feel good. Having that commitment redirect your intention is a very skillful thing. So it's never too late. Be willing to make mistakes. Sometimes we can have an idea we'd like to and even think that we are putting our, our heart into it but really undermining ourselves because we're not really ready to make that shift. And you have to be really honest with yourself. Are you truly ready to change? A number of years ago, 
I was sitting a retreat uh, at Yucca Valley um, where each spring, each April, I just came from Yucca Valley before here. There's a retreat that's that's uh, going on right now. Um, and I was sitting this uh, this retreat, uh, not teaching. This is before I was I was teaching, and there was a um, there's a movement session every day, uh, led in those days by somebody from uh, the Lomi School, which is a body mind centered, um, wonderful um, school of of discipline. And the person who was leading the um, the movement session. Uh, as often can happen at the end of the session, a number of people would come up with some questions for for him, and I had a question myself. And so I was I was one of a handful of people who had some questions. And there was one person who went first, and this and she had some particular physical situation that she wanted some advice on. She told him the situation, and he he said. Oh, here's an exercise that you might do. And he started to tell her, and she said, Oh, no, 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 I, I can't do that because there's this situation as well. <coughs> and he said, Oh, okay. He said, Well, here's an, another alternative that's a whole different way of approaching. And she said, Oh, no, 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 actually, you don't understand. I can't do that because I have this problem as well. And then he offered her a third, and... and he said, uh, well, you might try this. this. This could work. And she said, no, I, I don't think I can do that one either. And he stopped and paused and he said, I think your intention to stay the same is greater than your intention to change. And when your intention to change is greater than your intention to stay the same, you'll change. The <laughs> He nailed her. Uh, and the, the 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 power of it it was it was quite profound. It stayed in my mind all these years, and it is something to reflect on. If your intention to change is greater than your intention to stay the same, you'll change. Until it's there, be honest with yourself that you're maybe not quite ready. Much better to see, oh, I'm not quite ready, and not feel frustrated or confused then say, gosh, I wish I could change. Why aren't I? But in your heart, it's, you're not quite there yet. You can, short of some obvious physical disabilities, if it's a change in heart, a change in attitude, you can change. It's possible. If somebody, I was saying this to somebody in an interview today, if somebody told me, 31 years ago that it's actually possible to like yourself that it's actually possible to love yourself I would have said not in this lifetime I don't think so it's possible it's absolutely possible and when you realize that it's possible and you see the alternative you know what's the choice I run these. Um, I've run these groups in the last couple of years um, on cultivating joy, cultivating wholesome states, awakening joy, and I just wanted to see if it's possible to to cultivate wholesome states. And uh, I've 
done it uh, a few times, three different groups now, over a six-month period. And there's there's a whole um, oh regimen and some practices each month, and uh, and this group uh, of people do this practice in a supportive kind of context, you know, not and anyway. <laughs> and some you know some people come in because they just have said, well. I don't think joy is possible, you know, so let's see, you know, prove it to me. Uh, actually, it's been really interesting to see, you know, uh, it, it has attracted a number of aversive types who've, who've tried everything. And we all have to be something. You have, you're a greed type, an aversive type, a deluded type. There's, you know, those are the big three. I'm a greed type myself, so, um, you know, for better or worse, that's who I am. And it, it's not that you're only the bad stuff. There's a There's a... There's a, a healthy transmutation for each of those. But when aversive types come and say, okay, you think I can cultivate joy? Let's see. And it's amazing that a transformation actually happens. Uh, I'll read to you. I wrote something recently uh, that, so I have it here, from one participant in this this course it was the first one that I did and he by his by his own admission he's a tough tough nut to crack right he's a dear friend so uh, <laughs> some of my best friends are aversive types I just want you to know but the 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 assignment was to look for the good in life and to look for wholesome wholesomeness just to not only have your radar out for what's wrong as Thich Nhat Hanh says, you might try the practice, oh, what's not wrong? Oh, I had, a, I had a toothache last week. Oh, I don't have a toothache now. How wonderful. So here he is. That was, that was the, the, one of the main assignments for the month. And he shared this later on in the check-in. He said, one day this week, as I was driving into the city, there was traffic. I tend to get really frustrated and contracted when there's traffic. I get on a roll, thinking about everything that's wrong in our society. Suddenly that day, I stopped and asked myself, now wait a minute, is there any joy here? I saw I could just switch the channels. I looked out the window, and I saw the water. I looked around, and I noticed it was a clear day. I opened my sunroof, and I said to myself, you know, it's not so bad. I realized there was a switch that I'm starting to nurture that I didn't used to know was there. Whatever you incline the mind, whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that will be the inclination. And it's not to deny the hard stuff. I'm not talking about just being a sappy Pollyanna, oh yes, everything is going to work out fine. I'm talking about getting enough space, feeling enough joy in your life so that you can hold all the difficult stuff. Otherwise, it just gets too overwhelming. It means, though, that you have to believe in the possibility of, say, awakening joy or cultivating loving-kindness for yourself or for others or acting a little bit more wisely. 
Napoleon Hill, if you ever read Napoleon Hill's books, my 18-year-old son is right now reading The Secrets of Self-Mastery by Napoleon Hill. I'm so excited. It's, he wrote about like 80 or 90 years ago, but it's still like essential truths. And one of his main teachings is whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it will achieve. But it starts with conceiving that possibility and then believing it, which means you can't be dragged down and believing your limited beliefs. Oh, I'm somebody who I can never... This happened to me, so that's why I'll never... Don't let those limiting beliefs run you. They're just limiting beliefs. I know people who've gone through some of the most tragic, painful traumas who have transformed their pain into great compassion, who can be there for people in a way that's quite extraordinary and unique. Don't believe that because you've had some pain or trauma in your life that that's the end, that that's who your, what your identity is. Believe that that can, be, that can be given some meaning and allow you to give to life. This also, I want to say, just as a small digression, goes for not only our own personal experience, but for the wider societal beliefs in possibility and vision. Because there's so much to feel defeated and discouraged by that we think, oh, what's the point? Well, if you think that, then you're simply part of that inclination, that mass inclination of mind that says, what's the point? And you're missing out on something that from another perspective, is so obvious to me, first, that wherever the pendulum is, it never stays one side. That's the law of change. Second, that although there's so much fear and hatred and insensitivity and disconnection and ignorance in the world, there's more consciousness, communication, connection, inspiration than we've ever had. More instant global consciousness evolving than we've ever had. And if we can hold a positive vision, it becomes contagious. There was, perhaps you've heard uh, this fellow Robert Mueller who was, who was getting a... Um, a uh, humanitarian award. He was uh, undersecretary of the UN for many years and a tremendous optimist. And this was just before the war in Iraq started. And uh, he was given the, uh, the award. He went up for his acceptance speech. And somebody, maybe you've gotten an email around this, who was circulating. And he was a hero of mine because uh, he was a very inspiring uh, fellow. He wrote a great book called, called Most of All They Taught Me Happiness. And he gets up to give the acceptance speech um, in the middle of all of this fear and tension that was sweeping the world. 
and at the same time of all of these you know people trying their best to to prevent war and he said i'm so happy i'm so excited and inspired to be living in these times and the person who was sharing the email said who was writing about this said has this guy been reading the newspapers <laughs> <laughs> he was in his 80s um he said i've i've been so uh, i've never uh, been as hopeful uh, now for the human experience is he senile is he what's going on and then he go, went on to say never before has there been a worldwide conversation about the legitimacy of war mm-hmm. never before has there have there been mass demonstrations around the globe never before have china and russia sat side by side saying there's something wrong with this picture <laughs> or France and Germany saying no we will not support force sitting side by side in agreement not to take a small picture a slice and say oh this is terrible i know where this is heading you don't know where it's heading but if you hold a bigger possibility then you can be part of the inspiration this is howard zinn who says An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful, this great historian says, to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, This gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 24, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.